Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Andrea, who is the Managing Director of Commercialization and Propositions at Lloyds Banking Group in London, you know, one of the biggest banks in uh, in the UK. And she's a big uh, advocate and ambassador for innovation and partnerships in the UK banking sector. So I'm really interested to hear her perspectives on how these sort of matters should be resolved from a perspective of an arch incumbent with a you know, huge heritage and history, uh, but also lately more and more uh, involved in innovation and the, in the ecosystem. So welcome, Andrea. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So thank you for doing this. You know, as I mentioned, you're the MD commercialization and propositions at Lloyd's in London. What does that mean in real life? What is your mandate? Or in plain English, can you explain your role? Yeah, of course. So I'm part of the Lloyd's Banking Group leadership team. I work in the commercial bank, specifically within global transaction banking. I'm responsible for developing propositions, strategic partnerships and pricing across transaction banking product suite, which is everything from trade products and treasury services through to uh, payments and invoice finance. And it involves a number of strategic initiatives covering things like APIs, data and blockchain. And I'm also responsible for balance sheet optimization within the transaction bank. Further to that, I'm a board member for Finality International, which is a blockchain consortia establishing a new digital currency. Finality is creating a way for tokenized cash assets to be used to settle securities trades. Right. And you're, of course, uh, very active on the speaker circuit. And uh, this year has that has turned into a virtual one. And uh, I did hear <laughs> you at one of the conferences where you said, why shouldn't be banking just as simple as booking a hotel or ordering a taxi? And uh, that obviously suggests the answer that it's not. So why is that sometimes? Why is it sometimes the case, and what can be done about it? Well, it certainly should be the case that banking should be simple, particularly in a world which often seems increasingly complicated, in which clients and customers are facing so many challenges, particularly at the moment. But taking that taxi example, if you think about getting a taxi only a few years ago, you either had to call an office in person to order a taxi to have it sent to you, or you had to go and flag one down on the street. And now that's moved on to the likes of Uber, who've disintermediated the transport industry, providing taxi services with a click of a button. And it's faster, it's safer, it's easier. And we all know that increasingly businesses are heavily influenced by the experiences they see and feel as consumers. So everything is moving to become fast, easy and friction free. And in banking, we're on an innovation journey and there's an increasing need to meet those client and customer rising expectations. And many financial institutions are often large, multi-channeled, multi-jurisdictional and have multiple legacy systems. And this can sometimes mean that agility and innovation is not always easy. And we know from broad industry research that the pace of change for financial institutions is staggering. So 81% of banking CEOs are concerned about the speed of technological change. It's more than any other industry sector. And I firmly believe that financial services are rising to the challenge. 
The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted that digitisation and automation aren't optional, but rather that they're essential for resilience for a crisis and consequently in a post-COVID world too. So our focus is on giving customers and clients what they need and want. You know, for us, this means having the customer at the heart and the start of all of our strategies, our design and our delivery. And in terms of what Lloyd's are doing about it, as you mentioned at the start, you know, we're, we're large, we're multi-channel, we're a full service bank. You know, we've got 250 years plus of history and we've got lots of systems um, that reflect that time period. So digital transformation of our systems and services, this is a constant for us. And it has to be. And over the past three years, we've been underway in a £3 billion investment strategy to constantly improve systems and services. And to date, uh, we've invested more than £2.4 billion. And in 2019, our tech spend equated to about 19% of operating costs, which remains around um, the top quartile of global peers. Right. And, uh, you know, what that also means that you're a systemically important organization. Mm -hmm. So for for us who have been in banking for a while, especially post-financial crisis, we all know what that means. But in reality, that obviously sometimes could be at the the odds with uh, trying to be agile. So I heard about an example where Spotify is uh, giving out rewards to employees trying to bring down their system. And uh, in a systemically important organization like yours, that doesn't work. So how do you then infuse agility into organization with such constraints? Maybe can you tell us some examples on, you know, building up on what you just said? Yeah. So, I mean, we certainly don't do that. <laughs> we bank about 25% of all um, UK adults. And we have a relationship with probably closer to 40% if you think about all the different products, services and brands that we've got there out in the market. And this brings huge responsibility. It brings huge challenges, but it also brings huge benefits. And we're working really hard to be agile, to use collaborative tools and innovation methods. And it's really important to prioritise agility and digital dexterity, ensuring that we have the right business cases and strategies and and that they've all been appropriately scrutinised and informed with the right insight. And so the way I sort of think about this is I think about um, there are three types of change. The first one I think of as relentless incrementalism. So, you know, this is not the big and exciting things, but this is about making sure that we are constantly making little changes and evolving and improving constantly. So relentless incrementalism. Uh, The second one is really understanding through test and learns because test and learn allow us to explore and understand things uh, faster and cheaper than if we were to roll them out, you know, across the board. Um, And we then combine this with larger change programs, which tend to set the strategic direction of the bank. So for all of this to work, it's vital to have strong leadership and a clear strategic direction. And for us, it's really around things like making sure that the systems keep going, but that we also at the same time are exploring opportunities to leapfrog when it comes to technology. I mentioned the test and learn approach, and this is huge for us around continuing to drive small changes where it's all about maintaining a tight control on costs, making sure you've got the right senior sponsorship of all changes, providing an evolving view of our direction of travel and ensuring that we're continuing to lower the cost of business. We prioritise and reprioritise constantly. And for that, you need to make sure that you've got the right organisational support. So as an example, our strategic program, a $3 billion investment, it's about leading customer experience across our channels. So things like digitising the group. So we now have 75% of products digitally originated. Maximising the group's capabilities. So this for us is things like the single customer view, which is hugely important. It's, it's, you know, it's up there with golden source. And transforming ways of working. You know, we've got a very large workforce. We've got uh, a large number of colleagues across a variety of different roles who are working with us. And for that, that means 
means that we need to be constantly focusing on future skills, training and development so that as we as a company evolve, so do the people who are working with us. And I, I look at COVID, which has obviously been a global tragedy, but it has been a testament to our agility because it's really forced us in very tight timeframes to ensure that we're investing at speed in solutions that were supporting government lending. So I'm sure you would have seen, we went out there in the market, as did so many of our peers, and we joined um, British Business Bank schemes, and we lent out Mm -hmm. um, over £9 billion in government lending, and that was over such a short, tight period of time. Um, We had more than 53,000 fee-free overdrafts, capital repayment holidays, deferred payments, all of those sort of things. And so in order to do those things within such a short timeframe, it was around increasing the deployment of robotics to automate the loan application process for things like bounce-back loans allowing the majority of customers to receive funds within the 24-hour window. It was about upgrading a lot of our online lending tools to accommodate those government schemes. It was around redeploying a lot of colleagues across different teams to get them pointed at the areas where we really needed help at those critical points in time. And as you can imagine, it was also about doing all of that whilst we as a business were also moving all of our colleagues or as many as we possibly could to work from home environments you know, at that start of the crisis when nobody really knew what this was going to feel like and, and everybody was experiencing the crisis in different ways. So, you know, we had some people homeschooling, some people vulnerable, some people isolated. So, you know, it was a, a real testament looking back to how agile we can be. And great to hear that you were able to, you know, leverage the technologies. I've heard that uh, some incumbents, you know, under this uh, time pressure, you know, came back to the old methods, which is let's hire 2,000 consultants and fill in some (laughs) spreadsheets. So I I like the word robotics and automating, you know, the kind of administrative or repetitive tasks, right? Why not? But I also wanted to switch gear and and take a step back, you know, whether there is COVID or not, uh, you have a range of tools at your disposal when you deal with innovation and with the outside parts of it. It's not only internal, right? So what's your approach at Lloyd's when it comes to open innovation or partnerships and investing and where are the the right touch points with the group? Of course, you have different brands, different divisions as well. So if you just uh, sketch a picture, if I'm a a B2B fintech startup, but like to do something with with Lloyd's, uh, where should I start? It's a fascinating space, isn't it? Because, you know, it's really moved on, I think, from financial services looking at fintechs as a potential challenger to financial institutions looking at fintechs as potential partners. Right. And I think, you know, there are lots of exciting and fruitful collaborations between fintechs and and traditional banks over the last few years. And, you know, the trend definitely persisted through the pandemic. And it's set to continue as well, particularly, you know, I find around um, fintechs that are able to help the acceleration to digital even further. So, you know, I mentioned before around the opportunity to leapfrog when it comes to technology and and fintechs are definitely... um, one of our uh, one of our key strengths when it comes to that. They also really allow us to do that test and learn approach that I talked about. And they also reduce our cost of change, both in terms of time and pound sterling. And we recognise that the development of new effective propositions is hugely aided by financial institutions and fintechs drawing on each other's unique strengths and the benefits and where the benefits are recognised. So our recent financial institution sentiment survey highlighted that a third of financial institutions said that they will increase their fintech capability either through partnering or acquisition in the next 12 months. And because of the nature of what we do, we have a large amount of governance built around partnerships. And we work to find fintechs who are ready to partner and understand the road to banking partnership is seldom quick, but that can be mutually beneficial. Right. And what about the investing? I mean, are you also investing in the fintech startups and uh, 
well, somebody once asked me, like, well, if you use them as a vendor, why would you also invest, right? Uh, I think there is an answer to it but <laughs> that I, I would give, but uh, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because when you look at the when the, when you look at whether or not you invest in a fintech or not, you need to understand the reason why you're investing. So sometimes you will be investing because you want to have greater visibility or control around the roadmap. Um, other points in time, it might be because you want to secure exclusivity. But often the fintechs mm. have achieved the success that they have achieved because they're able to be so nimble and so agile which is about sitting outside of established financial institutions. And so there's a real balancing act there to make sure that the decision is the right one for both the fintech and the bank. Right. Understood. Understood. So when you do work with startups, you know, whether that's a partnership or investing or what have you, how do you find them? Uh, or do you go out there actively and scout for them or do you do desktop research or, you know, before COVID, uh, maybe meetups that you would organize and... <laughs> and try to scout this way or you know you have such a uh, pull power that you don't need to do it and you flood it by proposals oh no we, d- we definitely do both so um we like to be integrated in the fintech ecosystem so it's really important to us so involvement in programs such as the mayor's international business program um, the accenture fintech lab attendance at key industry events you know those sort of things really help to um get out there and see new fintechs and explore new propositions Another key activity is, is definitely market scanning because, you know, we, we really sort of focus on what is going to solve a problem or a pinch point for our customers. You know, what is it that they want? And having that customer at the heart and the start of everything is, is really key. So sometimes we'll do a market scan where we know that there is a need or there is a gap and that there's a business strategy and we will scan specifically for that. And there's been lots of examples of us having done that during the last period, particularly around payments. When we look at everything that happened with all of the lockdowns and the nature of the virus, really important to have the ability to make sure that you can make a, uh, a digital payment, but also really important to make sure that businesses can make distance payments, distance ordering, things that sort of reduce proximity with other people. You know, uh, that, that has been really interesting and really key. Other things that we look at, sometimes we'll go by, by the tech itself. So like lots of other financial institutions, we've spent time exploring blockchain, but we haven't wanted to invest in it or start in it in and of itself, very much see the technology as the enabler to something else. But when we found the intersection between that tech enablement and a customer propositional need, that's where we sort of decide to invest. So, you know, an example here, Lloyd's took an equity stake in Finality International, which is the company I mentioned at the beginning that I sit on the board of. And it's a really exciting opportunity for us to engage in DLT, but to do it in an area where we know that there is a lot of client need and a lot of focus around payments. Right. And uh, well, you mentioned what are you looking for when you do scouting and the outreach, but what are the selection criteria? Maybe also when you get the inbound, right? So what I mean by this is, uh, for instance, how early or how late these startups have to be so they are interesting for you, right? I mean, some people spend a lot of money on the on the POCs early on, and they mm-hmm. have even some sort of a VC portfolio approach where they say, well, you know, we spent uh, a little bit of money on 50 POCs and one or two we, we take further and those ones will be helping us to serve our customers. Others, maybe you'll say, well, I'd rather spend more money on less of the startups, but they're later stage where I know that uh, this product uh, works already. I can plug it in. And then all we talk about is scaling up and distribution, right? But the product is already working. So how early on does that work? Or do you have other criteria? I mean, 
in terms yeah. of size or country focus or what have you? Yeah, and, and it really varies depending on the situation and the need. And I know that I know that that's not always always helpful. I mean, I sort of think that we have at Lloyd's we have very strong cultural curiosity. So that does mean that we want to we want to experiment a lot with proof of concepts, pilots, research. We do a lot of client listening. Um, we really want to sort of get under the skin, under the skin of things. But, you know, as for a selection process, I think that, you know, we really start with things like, you know, is, is the proposition meeting a strategic need? You know, the first step is it has to be important to both the bank and the fintech. And the fintech has to really clearly define the value proposition. For us, a big emphasis on establishing pain points and the opportunities that they're offering to address you know, fintechs can really help a prospective bank partner easily identify how the fintech's product will fit within its structure and how the offering can benefit its clients. There's a big value of the partnership, though. It's really important that fintechs don't just emphasise their product's technical detail, but instead highlight the wider value their partnership could bring. And the partnership has to be mutually beneficial. Pointing out where a product could enhance their partner's customer experience, for example, would help a bank's procurement team clearly demonstrate internally how a fintech's offering supports its wider customer engagement strategy. And a collaborative culture is really key as well. So it's important to build a collaborative culture between a fintech and a bank, proving that employees have the time, resources and skills to work effectively with their counterparts. Because working with a bank is definitely a time commitment because we have such a strong governance culture. And you can imagine there is a huge emphasis before we onboard anybody to make sure that everything is robust and it's going to be the right thing for our customers. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that safety and security are vital. And, uh, you know, this can take time and it requires the right amount of focus. Right. And uh, how does economics work? I mean, I don't want to uh, create the havoc here and say that, you know, uh, if you do a POC with Lloyd's, uh, you know, once you select it, it's going to be X, right? And uh, you get paid uh, half a million pounds, even if you just have a PowerPoint slide. But in general, <laughs> what I would like to get to is, uh, you know, a lot of the B2B fintechs, uh, they are uh, struggling with enterprise sales, right? It, it takes a long time to, to work with incumbents. Sometimes yep. they need to show something for free. They are sometimes pushed into customization, which basically means that they are changing from a, being a product company to be a consultant. How does that work for you? Or with, you know, when you work with startups in terms of economics, do you uh, look at that as a as a one-off fee or uh, you you try to see how much time that takes to come up with a POC or a pilot, not in terms of numbers, but as a philosophy. Yeah. And again, it really varies situation by situation, mm. but the economics are generally that it starts small and fast as we can, prove the concept, test with clients, look to scale. Um, for order for a partnership to proceed, it has to both prove value, be feasible and be prioritised because, you know, in a large financial institution, there are lots of competing priorities. So getting that first proof of concept or pilot right is key, but it's not a guarantee to scale. Mm -hmm. um, Validus is an example of a pilot that we conducted at the early stages of the pandemic. Um, it's helped us speed up the processing of applications for loans through the Coronavirus Business Interrupted Loan Scheme, uh, the C-Bills, by enabling us to standardise clients' accounting software package, their management account information before it was sent on to our relationship managers for review. So it was ultimately helping them serve more businesses faster in a tie, in a situation where time was very much of the essence. You know, that was a great example of something where they were a company that we already knew, that we'd already done some experimenting with on a on another on another scale. Um, and during this crisis, they sort of came to us and they said, we think we can help you with this particular client problem. And so we did, we did a pilot to go in to see how, um, what difference it could make. And as you can imagine, bringing in a standardised data set 
um, into the process, it definitely does accelerate um, the time taken. So really beneficial. Um, and on the back of that, it's still it's still live and going. Um, but you know, it's something that you know we're hoping will lead will lead to a broader relationship with them. Um, but it wasn't about them building something specifically for us. It was about them understanding what their proposition was and how it could solve one of our customer pain points. The emphasis wasn't on the technology. The emphasis was on the customer pain point that they were solving. Hopefully, that's a helpful example. No, absolutely. I mean, this is exactly what I try to uh, tell people when I mentor, advise early stage startups, focus on the problem and uh, on your solution and then on the technology, right? It's not meant to be a technology that you're in love with and you're trying to find a place <laughs> where to put it. Uh, that's great to hear. Uh, also, would like to know if you are a startup and you get through that stage of pilots, etc., and proof of concepts, how does the long-term cooperation look like uh, with you and you know with, with Lloyd's group yeah I mean look it, uh, it as long as it's set up properly in the first place and it is solving that customer pain point and it's and it's mutually beneficial then long-term relationships you know I mean they, they carry on and they can be really fruitful for both sides I mean the thing we're really interested in in this space is how do we make financial services faster easier less frictionful for our clients how do we identify um, new pain points? How do we go in and solve them? Um, and we're looking for ways to understand that and experiment and prove fast and cheap before we look at big builds. And are these long-term cooperation agreements mostly about distribution then? And uh, you, you leave the product development to the startup or, or where is the type of the uh, cooperation uh, which is most often? Oh, and again, I mean, that really varies. So I, I think... Yeah, I think it really does vary. So depending on the situation, so if I use Validus as an example again, I mean, they came in and they did, uh, they definitely listened to what we wanted. So, you know, in a sense, they created a proposition for us. The proposition they created, though, they could definitely use with other people. So it wasn't customized to the point where it couldn't be used for others. It was about listening further to the additional pain points that they thought that they could help us solve. And obviously, by doing that, you're sort of proving good on a on a relationship. And that sort of stuff, I think, is really key in this space. All right. Understood. Makes sense. Um, and how does the monitoring of those partnerships work? In other words, uh, do you have milestones that you focus on that the your partners need to hit? Or how does that work? There are also some people who say, you know, when dealing with startups, you cannot have KPIs and uh, dashboards and things like this. Obviously not. Uh, you know, it is a learning vehicle and you go further beyond what, uh, what you've learned at a particular milestone, I would say. So how does that work for you? Uh, do you have and a, and particular think, things you focus on when you want yeah, to I think, continue? I think it's a balancing act. So um, we obviously still have um, sort of not milestones, but key results that we want to achieve from each partnership. Mm -hmm. um, but we do know that, you know, part of the blessing of working with fintechs is that they are, you know, so agile and are able to pivot. And so we don't want to become so um, so married to our metrics that we can't sort of move them on as, as situations evolve. But it is really important to make sure that we're monitoring, you know, what the impact is for our end clients uh, how much time it's taking, what it's costing, what resource internally it's pulling on as well, you know, and making sure that, you know, those research and those proof of concepts, the points that we probably built a business case around, that they're, that they're actually proving to be true. Because, you know, you can imagine there are lots of situations where um, the research or the proof of concept 
will reveal certain conversion rates um, or certain situations. And you need to make sure that we're constantly checking back to the core purpose of why we set these things up to make sure that we're delivering value for our customers, you know, as we as we originally hoped. Great. I mean, you mentioned some of the success stories uh, throughout our conversation, but do you have any more that you would like to mention? Happy to uh, to hear about more cases where this thing, these all these things worked out. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would I would touch on Finality International again. So, you know, this is distributed ledger technology enabled digital currency, creating this new payments infrastructure. And it was June last year that we invested along with 14 other banks, including names such as, you know, Credit Suisse, UBS, Banco Santander, ING, to name just a few. And cumulatively, we invested around 50 million in Series A funding into Finality. And Finality's mission is around creating a network of decentralized financial market infrastructure to deliver the means of payment on chain where a digital representation of fiat currency could be exchanged for wholesale use. And initially, you know, we've got five currencies in scope, but, you know, we're really hoping to build that out much further. And it's, you know, it's creating a digital version of existing currencies, which are 100% backed by the fiat currency held at the respective central bank, which are convertible. And what we've learned from going through and doing that, um, it's the first time that we've invested um, in anything that really utilises DLT. And it really, it allowed us to engage in an already mature proposition, which had clear engagement with key regulators, the process having begun in 2015, engaging in the Series A before taking a proactive role in shaping the proposition as it was being built. Um, This was further strengthened, obviously, by being on the board and being able to see really what was going on. And we're looking to this, you know, in the next few months, we're going to launch our MVP to connect to test the connectivity. But this has been a great experience because what it's allowed us to do is it's allowed us to we're obviously take an equity stake where we've got potential upside, but we're learning about a new technology through this process and we're learning in a live environment and what this is going to feel like and how it's going to be utilised with the ability to influence that roadmap so that we can be clear about ensuring that the benefits to customers are delivered on. So, you know, that would be another great example, I think. Great. Well, thank you very much. So before wrapping up, I just have two more questions. One, recognizing that uh, this has been a tough year, right? And uh, a lot of people Mm. work from home and uh, I think it's actually a privilege, right? But it's not simple. Uh, Depending on your situation, if you were not set up to do it this way or you have kids and family and things like this. But what also that meant for a lot of people is that they had time to do certain things that they couldn't before, for example, to learn new skills or uh, find out uh, more about themselves through reading or other, other, other means. So do you have any business book recommendation that you could share with the listeners, something that you come across recently that uh, really surprised you positively? Yeah, so I, look, I'm much more into podcasts these days. Uh, my favourite is definitely Freakonomics Radio. I also love More or Less, which is about behind the statistics, uh, Rebank, Fintech Insider, to name a few. In regard to books, New Power is a great one. I love Dare to Lead. But I find inspiration from lots of places. And one of the books I've really loved recently is a book called Guns, Germs and Steel. It's a way to think about why we are where we are. It's not banking or finance. But it shows the importance of really understanding the context. And, uh, you know, I think that that's uh, even more important now than ever. Wonderful. I'll check it out. And uh, one last question is, where do interested parties find out more about working with Lloyds? How do, how, what's the best way to get in touch? And uh, what kind of people would you like to hear from most? Yeah. So, I mean, if you Google LBG FinTech Pledge, you can find out more about our commitments and how we work with FinTechs. We 
hugely value the engagement we have from uh, from fintechs um, and we appreciate how much they can do to help us understand our customers and to improve our propositions within that space. So collaboration for us is really key. Our business and strategy teams extensively scout for the best-in-class fintechs and insure tech and we're connected to accelerators um, to source fintechs from this extensive network. So, you know, my advice to people would be to get out there with the accelerators to get out there and to be and to be you know out there networking so that uh, people are aware of uh, of what you've got to offer and the customer problems that you'll solve wonderful thank you so much andrea and good luck to lloyds thank you so much thank you for having me thank you for listening to voice of fintech podcast if you haven't already check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at voiceoffintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.